Welcome to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place. If you use the chart found at dotheology.com slash chart, this episode is for you. When you encounter chart doubters, or perhaps we could say chart deniers, you'll need something to say to justify the primary doctrine columns content. Why do we define primary doctrine the way that we do? Well, we recognize that our chart won't be for everyone. Uh, it's not for every Christian out there. But all Christians must have some sort of paradigm to work these things out. And if you like our paradigm, you'll want to know why you like it. Many want to know what kind of Christianity our chart defines when it comes to the primary column. Are we defining Orthodox Christianity, Reformed Christianity, Dispensational, Cessationist, Four-Point Calvinistic Christianity? <laughs> <laughs> and this is a legitimate question that deserves a legitimate answer. That's what we're doing today, starting on the other side of the music. Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about His Word. I just realized something. He wasn't sleeping on a pillow. He was sleeping on purpose. Something to say I think is important but not essential would be like the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, oh, wow. And okay. I hold to the inscription. Okay. Title of my sermon tonight is Why Church Nurseries Are Unscriptural and Wrong. And so that's why I have a baby on my hip right here. There is a level of anointing that I believe is going to invade your homes, invade your sight, invade your senses. Um, that's going to, I literally feel that chains are going to break off of you. Do you think I'm wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Yay. So am I a bad guy for saying you're wrong? Hey, by the way, you are a slave. If you're not a slave of Christ, you're a slave of sin. You aren't free. Choose your master. Give us some men who know the truth. All right, well, welcome back as we get into our conversation today. Addressing these issues of how do we think about what what are we defining with the primary column? What is what does this look like? And I think the the thing that we really need to start with is the the premise or the, perhaps the presupposition behind the question about well, what kind of Christianity does the chart define? What kind of Christianity is described by the primary column? That assumes that there are kind of multiple kinds or types of Christianities out there. Is yes, that actually indeed. the case? Yeah, yeah, people are basically saying, or assuming in the question, that there are different versions of Christianity. In fact, uh, did we ever play that clip from Andrew Sandlin on the show? I don't know if we ever did, where he was speaking at Apologia Church's Reform Con, and he's talking about dispensationalism, and he said, I've thought about this wording very carefully. With John Nelson Darby arose a new version of Christianity. Oh, yeah. We, I don't think we ever played it on the show, but yeah, that... Yikes. We should react to that sometime. That'd be a fun React episode. But, uh, but yeah, the question does become, well, how many Christianities exist? If someone's taking that view, how many Christianities exist? And the, the way you answer that question takes another question. It's like, well, how are you going to go about determining that, right? Right. So there's a few different routes that people might try to go down. You know, you think about, okay, if we're thinking about how many different Christianities exist, are we going to define it 
denominationally, like there's different denominations out there, and each denomination represents its own version of Christianity. I think a lot of unbelievers <laughs> who don't understand the how different denominations arose would kind of view things this way. It's just like, well, how do I know which church is true? There's so many denominations. It's a common critique against Christianity. Especially from Mormons, where yeah. uh, the, that's their whole premise. That's why they exist, because they're the one true church, and all the denominations are separate yeah. false churches, basically. Because there's no different versions or flavors of Mormonism at all. They're all completely <laughs> yeah. unified, right? Yeah, the Last I looked, the Wikipedia article had like 70... <laughs> types of Mormon, but, but yeah, if okay. we went the yeah. denominational route, it would take a long time to explain how many versions of Christianity exist because you just looked it up. How many denominations are there? It said there were 200 in the United States and as many as 45,000 worldwide, which don't even know how that's possible, but okay. Heck, I don't even know if there are 45,000 Christians worldwide. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, basically with that approach, you'd be saying each denomination is its own flavor of Christianity, and there would be as many Christianities as there are denominations, meaning there are upwards of 45,000 Christianities. Um, pros and cons to that, One of the, the only real pro that I can see, maybe you'll think of others, Ken, but it is true that there are many denominations out there. And as we begin exploring that, they we see they have real differences. Those mm-hmm. differences matter. Those differences should be acknowledged. And so if you're looking to define different—we're uh, just going to go with that terminology—Christianities based on denominations, at least in that conversation, you'll be looking at differences that matter. Yeah, and I think that's helpful to that degree. Most denominations will have some level of statement of faith or something that they subscribe to that defines who they are, what they're like. And that is helpful as a quick breakdown of what each group believes. Yeah. But there are also cons to this approach. There are lots of cons to this approach. Lots of cons. <laughs> uh, if there really are 45,000 denominations or even just 200 inside the United States, which I'm still wrapping my mind around how that can be a thing, but okay, let's say 200 within the United States. That is a lot to try to keep track of and try to evaluate. And how do you, and are all of those differences even significant or meaningful differences between the denominations? Right. I mean, we can all think of different denominations like within the Baptist tradition, where it's like, you guys are just so slightly different to, mm-hmm. I mean, you won't even find out the differences until you're 10 years into that denomination, you know. Uh, but there there are good resources out there if you want to learn about those differences, and you should. You should want to be aware of at least some of the more major differences that exist. Uh, one of the most helpful resources that I've found is a YouTube channel called Ready to Harvest. There's a, a young man who actually is a professor at a Bible college, I think in like North Dakota or South Dakota or somewhere. And that's all that this YouTube channel does is it focuses on uh, defining denominations in their own words and then comparing and contrasting denominations with other denominations. It's extremely helpful, and I imagine a lot of our listeners have come across this content, but it's called Ready to Harvest. So, Yeah, and at the end of the day, what we find through all of that is that denominations aren't versions of Christianity. Right. (laughs) So, for example... 
the Baptist denomination that's different than the other Baptist denomination because the the frequency of communion is different, and um, you know we'll say maybe their method of baptism is different. One dunks three times, the other dunks once. Hmm. Uh, those aren't different versions of Christianity. They just aren't. Have you heard that one joke about the two guys that meet on a bridge and they start talking and he's like, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, really? Me too. What what kind of Christian are you? Oh, I'm a Baptist. Oh, me too. Well, what kind of Baptist are you? Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Oh, I'm a Northern Baptist. Me too. And it goes down the list and down the list until it gets to like one tiny, minute, like really minor thing. Are you this or are you that? Oh, well, I'm this. Die, heretic! And he pushes him over the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's uh, pretty accurate, sadly. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, I mean, those two guys aren't two different religions. Those aren't yeah. two different Christianities. And there are countless examples of that sort of thing within all the major movements that have existed within church history. Mm-hmm. So if we're not going to go by denominations, okay, well, maybe we need to go a different route. If, if, if we can't just look at a denomination and say, this is the definition, or these are the different Christianities, maybe we can zoom out a little bit and look at broader movements and consider if that might be the way that we can determine how many Christianities there are, so to speak. Yeah, maybe the movements themselves that are the like umbrella over the denominations, maybe that's the way to go. And there would be as many Christianities as there are major doctrinal movements throughout church history, because that number would be greatly reduced from 45,000. <laughs> <laughs> right. And a lot of times these groups get are organized according to different ways and different criteria, uh, but there are there are some ways that I think are more helpful to break down than other ways. Yeah, so. like we could say um, the big four, I'm just making this up kind of on the fly, uh, where you've got the Orthodox Christian denominations and uh, movements. You've got the Roman Catholic Christian movement. You have mainstream Protestant and evangelical Protestant. So Orthodox, Roman Catholic, mainstream Protestant, evangelical Protestant. There's there's four, and you can just look at those four movements and say, those are four different types of Christianity. Uh, which one is your chart defining? And someone perhaps could legitimately look at our uh, chart and say that it's defining evangelical Protestantism over and against those other three. And uh, I'll say why that's legitimate as we get to our third route that we'll go down. Uh, But there are other ways of looking at movements throughout church history. Like I've got a a poster in my office that I ordered from Answers in Genesis. It was composed by Bodie Hodge. I believe he's Ken Ham's son-in-law. Hmm. It's World Religions and Cults. It's a poster that just traces to the best of one's ability on a poster how we got all these different movements through church history and what they were tied to, what branched off of what. It's a really cool poster. And if we can remember, we'll link it in the show notes. But uh, he starts after the time of Christ with the five major churches in the five major cities of Antioch, Jerusalem, Constantinople, Rome, and Alexandria. And that eventually led to more broad movements, especially out of Rome and the different movements that broke off of Rome. And he has those set up as uh, Orthodox, uh, you know, the split and the schisms that they went through, the East and the West Church, the Roman Catholic Church, Lutheran slash Evangelical, 
Reformed, Anglican, and Anabaptist. That's the way he has it set up. And so there are different ways of going about this, but you can look at the major movements through church history, and that's another way to begin to answer the question, how many Christianities exist? And in some ways, that can be more helpful, because if you're looking at the broader umbrella and see, okay, there's these different denominations, but hey, you know, they all, these, this group of denominations kind of fits under the um, broader umbrella of Lutheran, and this one kind of fits mm-hmm. under the broader umbrella of Reformed, you know, what, however you want to break that down. That's a little bit more helpful, I think, as you're kind of broadening things out, and you're kind of looking at things a little more uh, bigger, and it's easier to trace that, that level of movement rather than the individual uh, denominations as it breaks off. And I think it's something that we were talking about earlier before we started recording is how that's beneficial to recognize the benefit of studying church history and to look at how things have moved throughout church history. That is, That can be very valuable for us to understand where different traditions have come from and where they've arisen and developed over time as as we trace it on that level of granularity or lack thereof, I suppose. And yet, there are still some cons to this approach as well. Yeah, so even though we're looking at the more substantive differences that separate large groups, um, it's a bit reductionistic. I mean, for example, you and I can, I mean, our doctrine, for all intents and purposes, we're pretty much the exact same. Where would we fit in... Mm -hmm. That breakdown, even if we went with the more detailed one from the poster I have in my office of Orthodox, no, that's not us. Roman Catholic, no, that's not us. Lutheran slash Evangelical, Reformed, Anglican, that's not us. Anabaptist, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, it, it, a lot of Christians wouldn't feel like they're rightly defined by one of those really broad labels. Yeah. So, and even if Even if you could legitimately trace... The history to one of those, you still there, there there can still be aspects of where it's like, well, I I still don't feel like I'm part of that stream, even though I may have come out of that stream. Yes. I came out of that stream. I'm in my own stream now. You yes, know? right. And and another thing I really don't like about this approach is it does kind of play into the mentality of which one is right over and mm. against the others. Like there is a golden thread back to Jesus, mm. and these guys have always been right in this certain stream. And just, I mean, church history just isn't that clean cut. I mean, there are just always people who've gotten things right and things wrong. And that includes us today, right? Yeah. So there is no like golden thread of these are the the perfect Christians or the one true church or the one true denomination or the one true movement. It's just not actually that clean. But when you start looking at movements and saying, which movement are you a part of? You're basically looking for a label to attach yourself to that says, see, I'm legit because this links back to Jesus cleanly, and that's just not true. Yeah. And it also gets into placing emphasis on traditions rather than on the Word of God itself. Yeah. You know, and, and we can recognize value in certain traditions, but where is the emphasis and where what are we looking to as authoritative that becomes a key question. So then what's a third and final route that we can entertain and discuss here, Kenny? Well, we are calling it the biblical route, which of course, <laughs> by self-affixing that title to it, automatically makes us right and more pious than everyone else, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, we do need to go directly to the source of all truth, 
these scriptures, see how the scriptures define themselves, how it defines truth, how it defines the church, etc., and we need to be reliant upon the Word of God and not the traditions of men. Yeah, uh, that going back to that poster that I have, um, it says, even though it's here listing out all these different movements and denominations, it says on the poster, there are only two religions in the world, God's and not God's. Mm-hmm. God's not plural, lowercase g, but capital G-O-D, apostrophe S. Yes. Uh, God's religion or not God's religion. And there is only one Christianity as defined by the Bible. Uh, the Bible doesn't give us multiple Christianities. The Bible gives us one Christianity. And going back to the uh, comment I made when we were talking about the big four movements, uh, as I <laughs> dubbed them, how you have Orthodox, Roman Catholic, mainstream Protestant, and evangelical Protestant, I was saying you could rightly say that our chart in the primary column is devi- defining evangelical Protestantism because all biblical Christians, all Christians who are committed to the Bible defining one Christianity, they're going to end up being some flavor of evangelical Protestant. Now, not necessarily are all evangelical Protestants committed to a biblical defining of Christianity, Mm -hmm. but anybody who is committed to a biblical defining of Christianity is going to end up being an evangelical Protestant as we use the label today. They're not going to end up being Orthodox, Roman Catholic, or mainstream liberal Protestant. Which for some people, that might be a big statement to swallow, right? We are saying without apology that the Roman Catholic Church— Eastern Orthodox Church, mainline denominational churches are not biblical Christianity, whatever they may call themselves. Yeah, they, they are apostate. Are yes. Yeah. Now, this whole approach of taking the Bible at its word and saying that's our way of defining Christianity is by letting the Bible define Christianity, it may for some sound pious or impossible. Those are kind of the two retorts you get. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's just, it's not either one of those things. So shut up. Because <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound, uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, how stupid is it? God communicated to us through his revelation in a way that we can understand, and he preserved it for us that generation after generation in the church would continue to hear him in his word and then turn around and say, yeah, but you, you you can't let that define Christianity. Yeah. Are you serious, bro? It it really does come down to that question. Has God spoken, and what has he said? Like, that's what we want to know, and we want to define our faith and our practice by that. Amen. So there's some obvious pros to this, aren't there, Kenneth? I Sometimes I get freaked out whenever I remember your real name is Kenneth. Why? <laughs> I just I don't think of you as a Kenneth. It just doesn't seem like it goes with you. Well, don't know what to say. What are some pros of the biblical <laughs> route, Ken? Well, obviously, the Bible is the only source of authority, and, and it is sufficient in that way. Like, there's there's nothing else that has that is to use the big theological words, theonostos, right? Is breathed out by God. Nothing else is that, so we are relying upon the all-authoritative and all-sufficient Word of God. God defines what is true and good in His own terms, 
It transcends time and culture. Mm -hmm. We're not bound by the ebbs and flows of whatever's going on in the world today, but we're embracing what God has said and letting that be the, I don't know what analogy to use. We're letting that be our guide. Yeah. And that's the end of it. The, the transcendent nature of this method is really crucial. Mm-hmm. I mean, t- taking God at His Word is not a movement that will be supplanted by another movement. Right. Whereas every other approach to defining Christianity is going to be man's approach, and it absolutely runs the risk of being supplanted by another man or another movement. In, in fact, it's a guarantee that it will be eventually. Yeah. Uh, because what man does is not eternal. What God does is eternal and is powerful. So so those are some pretty major pros to uh, defining the <laughs> Christianity this way. Right. And and it's and we're not you know, you mentioned, you know, the, some critiques that might come. Well, you're just uh, you're just trying to be all pious and stuff with it. It's like, well, it's not really. I mean, it it, it may sound that way, but everybody has to come to a, a place of where is the ultimate authority. And if you're not placing that in the scriptures, you're off on the wrong foot. That's right. And that's the that's bottom right. line. Now, there's a a challenge to this. It's not so much a con, but there's is a challenge to this approach, which is at the end of the day, someone still has to interpret the Word of God, hmm. right? I mean, God says what He says, yet someone still has to interpret it. And so... Right. That's what we want to talk through next is is analyzing this biblical route and tying it into our chart as we've listed certain doctrines that we say are definitional to Christianity, they are primary. Well, how do we get there uh, since someone still must interpret the Word of God? This is the the issue of someone still must interpret. Uh, that that was a uh, that was a common objection to the chart in some ways from one person on our on our uh, Facebook page. I don't even remember that guy who kept commenting about, well, who has the authority to say yeah. what's primary, secondary, and all these things. Like, that's, it's, it's a big issue, and, it, and we recognize that it is a challenge that someone still must interpret. But just because it's a challenge does not mean that it's impossible, and it does not mean that this is the incorrect approach. Right, and I mean, baked into that guy's view and baked into the question we're answering today, which Christianity is right, is this this presupposition that we just—we can't have just a biblical Christianity. We have to have some sort of tradition to observe. And we're just pushing back against that and saying, no, when we go to the Bible itself— the Bible gives us apostolic instruction that has been preserved by God that is to be observed. And if you want to say there's any tradition, it's just what was taught by the apostles. Mm. Uh, that That's our tradition, and we find that in the Word of God, and we go to that directly, and there is no mediator in between. There's no church that tells us or filters or, or explains anything, but we can be Bereans. We can go directly to the source, and we can study to show ourselves approved and we can have, of course, teachers in the church yes. that help us. Uh, we're, we're not denying the role of the church, but what we're saying is uh, we have access to the Scriptures as God's people, mm-hmm. and the Scriptures have all the authority and sufficiency. No church does. Many, I would say most, if not all, of the you know Protestant denominational and, and traditions— would affirm the concept of the priesthood of all believers, right? That was one of the things that coming out of the 
Reformation coming out of the Roman Catholic Church, where there was the priesthood in the Roman Catholic Church. Well, no, there's the priesthood of all believers. Well, saying that you cannot understand God's Word on your own apart from any extra-biblical resources is effectively denying the priesthood of the believer in our ability to understand God's Word as it's there on the page and go to the Lord directly. Uh, that's, that's a big thing. That really is a significant issue. Yeah. Yeah, we simply cannot allow the traditions of men to define what is true. I mean, at the end of the day, that's, that's where we draw the line. And so if we're going to the Bible to draw from the Bible what God has said, we must commit ourselves to a hermeneutic that allows God to speak on his own terms. Mm. And when this happens, this is the amazing thing, that people just in their flesh just reject the possibility of this for whatever reason. But when this happens, when we go to God's Word, allowing God to speak on his own terms, there's an amazing unity that arises within the global church where we have a common confession, where we agree on what is true, what, what God has said that just cannot be denied, that that anything else would just be a twisting of the Word of God. And we're not saying it's every single doctrinal point. Uh, that's the difference between primary and secondary doctrine. Hmm. But we're saying that there are certain doctrines that the global church yes. will agree on, and those are what are, are what's primary. So that's uh, the amazing thing that happens when we go to the Word of God and trust God at His Word. Today, I was spending time with another another church planter who's in the SBC. We have a number of differences on a variety of things, and yet we both would be boom, 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 right down the line on the primary column in perfect lockstep with each other. How is that possible? Well, it's not just because we have our, our doctrinal statements and our creeds and our confessions. It's because we both rightly understand the primary truths of Scripture that are just so clearly in how they transcend the hermeneutical differences that we may share. It transcends all of that, and there's an incredible unity, and we can embrace one another as brothers, knowing that we proclaim the same gospel, and we're on the same page when it comes to other issues within that primary column. Now, there are uh, those in our camp uh, speaking, I guess we can just say, even within evangelical Protestantism, or those who are committed to the sufficiency and authority of the Bible, mm. who will also say that we need a, a confession. So uh, people who subscribe to the Westminster or the London Baptist Confession of Faith, you know, they're, they're not subscribing to these over and against the sufficiency and authority of the Bible, but they say that we, we need these confessions also as a church. And, and they would say that they're not, these confessions aren't as authoritative as the Bible, okay? But we still need them as a church. There are guardrails is the common thing to be said. Yeah, yeah, guard guardrails. And uh, I'd say the vast majority of the time, people like us who are not confessionalists in that sense, uh, we can we leave them alone. But they like to throw bombs at us, and the grenades that they lop over the fence are often pretty vague and dubious. <laughs> like sometimes I just don't even understand what the charge is. Uh, so, for example, going to uh, Christian Twitter earlier this week. There Great was a... source of truth and, and edification. <laughs> That's where the real fellowship is. <laughs> um, Josh Summer tweeted out earlier this week 
Biblicism is, and that's that's what they call us, non-confessionalists. We're biblicists, and that's supposed to be a bad thing. Biblicism is the rejection of extra-biblical language and employment of other sciences, like philosophy, in service of the queen science, which is theology. Biblicism is not the same thing as a commitment to sola scriptura. The Puritans, for example, were committed to sola scriptura, but were not biblicists. And then there's a guy who replied to that tweet saying, I think biblicism typically also includes a wooden literalism that doesn't distinguish between different literary genres found in Scripture. Uh, And Josh Summer agreed to that. Well, I jumped on there and said, do you guys got examples of Christians who teach this way? Uh, Christians who deny all extra-biblical language and employment of philosophy and other sciences? Christians who have a wooden literalism that doesn't account for literary genres within Scripture? Like, who are these people? I mean, these are just such vague and dubious claims that doesn't fit the way we approach the Bible as biblicists, right, Ken? Yeah, yeah. The you mentioned, you know, they, they label us as biblicists as if that's intended to be a pejorative, and I almost like to wear that as a badge of honor in a way. It's just like, yeah, I want my theology, I want my practice to be an outflow of what the scriptures say. I want to be relying upon the scriptures, so I don't take that as a pejorative, but then they load that with a, a definition that I don't think anyone who self-labels themselves as a biblicist would really embrace. Uh, yeah. I mean, there was a similar exchange between uh, Craig Carter, he's a professor at Tyndale University, and then Owen Strand, um, what is he, the chancellor or the president of, uh, I'm forgetting oh, the name, uh, Grace Baptist Theological Center. The one in Arkansas. Yeah. Uh, and it was about the definition of biblicism, right? And, and, and Craig Carter had a similar thing to say, that uh, the term biblicism does not mean just holding a high view of Scripture. Biblicism is the view that no biblical words can be required for orthodoxy. So, quote, no creed but the Bible. And he says it was taught by Arians and, and Socinians and a fair number of modern evangelicals. And Owen's reply is, well, not a single pastor or theologian I know holds this view. Not saying there aren't biblicists but saying that that's not how those who are embracing the terminology of biblicism, that's not how we're understanding it, and it doesn't seem to be any widespread uh, self— no, no, there doesn't seem to be a widespread movement of what many people are denigrating biblicism for. Right, yeah. I I want names. I want hard examples. Like, how am I supposed to examine— this situation, if you're not telling me who's teaching this way or providing some sort of example, you would think examples would abound based on the way they talk about it. And it doesn't mean that there aren't people out there that do believe that way. Sure. And and I'm sure perhaps you've ran into people and I've ran into people who have this view. It's just me, the Holy Spirit. It's just me, my Bible, and the Holy Spirit, right? That's sufficient. That's enough. But those aren't teachers usually. Those are usually misguided individual Christians who have a uh, uh, inadequate understanding of what the Bible itself is yeah. teaching about the need for community and being a part of a good local church, etc. Those aren't high-profile pastors and teachers who are trying to lead a biblicistic movement. Right, yeah, it's not like that is running rampant in the church today. Right. And so our response, in addition to all that we just brought up, 
Our response to those who are confessionalists, who we recognize share our view of the Bible, but are also confessionalists, Mm -hmm. our response to them is that, hey, to be a good confessionalist, you have to first be a good biblicist. I mean, how do you know which confession is good and right and true? How do you judge the confession? Yeah. Well, you got to be a good biblicist first. And that's, you know, in addition to what we were saying, that many of their critiques don't apply to anybody that we know. So, Well, you think about yeah. the, the those who formed the confessions, they had to be biblicists to even write what the confession was, because they're just writing it as a distillation of what they understood scriptures to be teaching— well, that means they had to be going directly to the Bible for that formulation. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it kind of, to me, it's a little bit of a self-defeating argument. But. So our, our primary column on the chart is not defining a confessional Christianity uh, per se, but a biblical Christianity going to the Bible to see what doctrines God gives us as definitional to the one Christianity he's teaching us through Scripture. Mm-hmm. And our chart in the primary column seeks to reflect those biblical truths that transcend our interpretive grids, our hermeneutics. If it's in the primary column, if it's definitional to Christianity, that means God has revealed it in such a way that it transcends the different hermeneutic approach we might bring to Scripture. It it transcends the denominational differences that we have. You could think of it that way. It transcends the different movements that exist. Now, these are doctrines that God has made so clear that any denial of the doctrine would be exegetically indefensible. You could not go to Scripture and say, this is why I deny this doctrine, because look at what the Scripture says. It's just impossible to do. So that's how we get to those doctrines in the primary column. But Jeremy, haven't you just created a new confession and a new creed by creating your chart? If you want to call it that, sure. I mean, it's no different than a local church's doctrinal statement. I mean, if you want to call that a creed or a confession, you can. I don't care what you call it, and I'm mm. not saying that all Christians need to use mine. Uh, but if you're a Christian living in the real world, you have to have some sort of paradigm, and we've done our best to do the work to provide this paradigm for those who are wanting to think through this. Call it a confession if you want. You don't have to use it, but you got to come up with something. And that's the thing, and because the developing the chart is not to say that creeds and confessions are unhelpful at all. Like, like we we don't outright reject creeds and confessions on principle that it's a creed or a confession. That's not the point. The point is, what is the source of truth? Yeah, and let's stand on that. Well, let's finish this episode by talking about some of the major complaints we get about the doctrines we've put in the primary doctrine column. Um, Usually the format of the retort goes like this. How can you say that this, your, your chart, your primary doctrine, is real Christianity when the majority of churches don't accept fill in the blank? So they'll look at the chart and see the example doctrines we have listed, and they'll pick out one and say, Uh, say, gender roles or biblical sexuality. How can you say this is real Christianity, as you've defined it, when the majority of churches don't accept gender roles as, you know, a a primary issue? There's so much debate. Mm -hmm. Or biblical inerrancy. Uh, Biblical inerrancy is a new doctrine that was invented with the blah, 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 blah. How can you say that this is real Christianity? 
Um, well, even in our uh, in our introduction music, we got all Mike Winger in there saying that he doesn't think inerrancy is a primary issue, and he holds to inerrancy. He's very yes. quick to to affirm that, but he doesn't think it's primary. Well, he used the language of essential, which I think True. is even worse. Yeah. <laughs> well, oh boy, if that's not essential, then nothing's essential. Um, so biblical sexuality and gender roles, we hear about that one a lot. Biblical inerrancy, hear about that one a lot. The other one we hear about, is, at least in my experience, mm-hmm. is substitutionary atonement. Like, well, substitutionary atonement, how can you say that's at the heart of the gospel whenever there have been different theories on the atonement throughout church history? So... Let's just briefly touch on these. Um, we don't need, you know, long responses in this episode. Perhaps uh, we'll do a full-on episode on one of these topics uh, soon. But but let's briefly touch on each one of these. Well, we have uh, touched on some of these. So, like the whole uh, gender roles thing, we actually created a standalone video specifically on gender roles, just because we were getting so many objections to that, and that. Oh, it was right around the time there was something big going on in Christianity. I don't even remember what the issue was at that time, but there was a lot of conversation around the issue of gender roles. Do you I remember? think that was, yeah, the SBC, I think. It was something with them and the role of women. It was something about, maybe that's when they were going through the issue of defining pastor, hmm. or um, the Beth Moore stuff was coming to a head. I can't remember what it was, we'll but I, I, think it, yeah. I think it was a Southern Baptist thing. So that was a big conversation, and we were hearing a lot of a lot of chatter about that in response to our chart, people objecting and things. So we made a standalone video. It's what about like six or seven minutes long, kind of defending. I was thinking like ten or twelve. Maybe okay, maybe it was longer. Uh, so you can watch that link. Will be in the show notes, and we'll just let that speak for that. And well, and I'll just throw in there too. You know, our whole point with that is saying here's why we believe this is primary. Here are these passages right. that are quite clear, and to try to reverse what these passages are teaching is exegetically indefensible. Mm-hmm. That's why that's why it's in the primary column. Yes. So there are the, the other issues that we mentioned, people objecting to the concept of inerrancy, and we we stand with the, uh, the Chicago Statement on inerrancy that was written. Oh, what year was that? Oh, I know this. I, I, 78. Yeah, 70. Okay, there you go. Um, yeah, that's our confession. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we, again, that, that kind of highlights a little bit of how we still see value in different statements and things that are written, even Amen. though the final authority is the scriptures themselves. Yep. Uh, but yeah, we affirm inerrancy. In fact, Jeremy and I, as this is being recorded, are both writing articles on inerrancy that's going to be, uh, Lord willing, published in um, a magazine in the near future. So. Yeah, look for that. Come yeah, soon. There, there, there's just no way for anybody to read the Bible and come away with, oh, the the writers of Scripture thought Scripture had error. Yeah, there's just no way to get there. I mean, the, I mean to to say, yeah, these people that got inspired thought that the Word of God could be erroneous. The, the, again, that's an exegetically indefensible position. So I just, on my desk right now, have this book by B.B. Warfield, The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible, where he was defending that thing, the inspiration authority. And really, the the issue of inerrancy is directly tied to the issue of inspiration and authority. You can't get around it. There's no way that you could ever make a credible claim that the Bible and the 
and the writers who wrote the Bible that there was inspiration and authority, and it was also full of errors. <laughs> like that's just – it does not – Cohere. It is not a. It is. It, there's no coherence between those ideas. If you're going to affirm one, you have to affirm them all to be consistent. Yeah. Jesus said, "Scripture cannot be broken." Yes. Yep. So yeah, we do affirm inerrancy and unapologetically so. And mm-hmm. any true Christianity will also affirm inerrancy. Yeah. Yeah. Any. Yeah. Any true expression of the one true Christianity yes. is is going to affirm inerrancy. That's right. Which is, and again, we kind of got into this with our episode about, you know, different people who have denied primary things, uh, and yet we still kind of like some of their stuff and still quote them or appreciate some of the things that they've written, like C.S. Lewis on inerrancy. And so I almost always feel the need to to, <laughs> to qualify this. Like, we're not saying that the, that people who deny this are necessarily unbelievers, but it is not biblical Christianity. Right. That's right. So, Which uh, actually ties right into the third one, substitutionary atonement, that mm-hmm. we hear feedback on in our last episode where we talked about C.S. Lewis and uh, others on inerrancy. Um, we talked about different atonement theories that have existed, and substitutionary, penal, substitutionary atonement is what the Bible presents. In uh, what Jesus accomplished. Romans 5, 9, we are saved from the wrath of God through Jesus. Uh, He bore in his body on the cross our sins, 1 Mm -hmm. Peter 2, 24. So um, he was a propitiation. Yes, yeah. Yeah. He he carried our sorrows. Uh, You know, by his wounds, we are healed. There's a substitutionary aspect to all of this, and it's just what Scripture teaches in addition to different angles on it, I'm not saying that mm-hmm. you can't talk about, you know, he, he paid a ransom. He certainly paid a ransom, okay? Uh, not to the devil, but he did pay a ransom. Right. And uh, But substitutionary atonement is the heart of this, the, the language of propitiation, a satisfactory payment in our place. I mean, that is just so clear. And I was recently listening to a, an interview on the Revealed Apologetics show with Eli Ayala, and I really like his uh his podcast and he was having uh, basically an interview with a guy who's a former eastern orthodox priest his mm. name's jo- joshua shooping and he would actually be a great guest on our show i haven't talked to you about this ken but maybe mm. that'll work out but he was talking about in his journey from eastern orthodoxy as a priest to now being a i'm just gonna throw the label evangelical protestant uh, how substitutionary atonement was a major part of that, where he was told that substitutionary atonement was not uh, upheld by the church in the hymns and in the fathers. Well, he went back and he started examining, and Christians from very early on were teaching a substitutionary atonement view. Yeah. And he said, you know, he went to his mentor and was like, what do I do with this? And there was no good answer. And then he goes to Scripture, and there it is in Scripture. And that rocked his world. So... Yeah, that's that's primary. That's at the heart of the gospel. Yeah, truly. Yeah, that's the, there's a really good book called Pierce for Our Transgressions, which of course draws from Isaiah 53, uh, but it really goes through all the biblical data, tracing it from you know uh, Leviticus and then through Isaiah and there's many Old Testament texts and in the New Testament, many New Testament texts, and just does the appropriate exegesis to demonstrate that there's no way to get around this. And it, mm. by the time you get done reading, 
I read the section on Isaiah 53 and I was just like, how can anyone understand this in any other way? It's just so, so clear. Mm-hmm. And because of its clarity, it is a primary issue. It transcends hermeneutical methodologies, because it's the hermeneutics that affirm the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. It's just there. It's so clear. So at the end of the day, when it comes to changing our mind about the primary doctrines we've listed on our chart, you must convince us otherwise from the Bible. If Mm -hmm. you think something has to be taken off, you got to convince us from the Bible. And what we're saying is you can't, (laughs) because that's the whole purpose of us listing them there is they're denying them as exegetically indefensible. Yes. So as we boil all that down, it's like, okay, so what is what it, what are we defining by the that we're going back to the original question, what does it define? Well, to the best of our ability, we've sought to define biblical Christianity. We sought to structure the chart in such a way that the primary column, the primary doctrines listed there reflects a biblical Christianity founded upon the scriptures themselves and how the scripture presents key doctrinal positions and key moral and ethical issues as well. And that if we depart from this, we are departing from biblical Christianity. That's it. Big statement. But what's that, uh, the format of Stephen Crowder? Change my mind. Yeah. Change my mind. Yeah. This is biblical Christianity. Change my mind. (laughs) Well, anything we want to say to land this plane? I think that's it. That's almost, that's our mic drop moment, right? Just boom. We just, (laughs) now we get to walk away in a blaze of glory with all the flames burning behind us. Yeah, something like that. (laughs) Well, thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us on this journey today. Hopefully this is helpful as you use the chart where you can explain this approach to others. There's a lot to consider as we just demonstrated with this episode. I don't know how long we've recorded here, but it does take words, uh, lots of words to explain all of this. But hopefully this helps you to understand more of where we're coming from and help you use the chart better. Yeah. Any uh, Anything you want to say as far as life updates and such going on over there in old Mormon land? Yeah, I don't really have uh, too much other than it's a sabbatical year for me, and so we've been planning that. We've got big trip planned and uh but before that we've got the spring and the spring is filling up mm. uh, every like every weekend is filling up with something so uh anyway yeah it's uh pretty normal out here which is not something i can say often about utah <laughs> what about you oh, very good uh uh we're kind of again more of the same as, as things that we described before um just working on the house getting things continue to get things fixed up and repaired as we go. Got a new fridge. That was exciting. Um, expensive, but exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so doing a lot of electrical work, which is, which is good. Uh, there's a lot of, pay, lot, you got to pay for things. that fridge. Got to pay for that fridge. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I'm doing some neat projects and stuff. This morning I met with a, uh, a fellow church planter who um, asked me to help with some electrical for their new facility that they're about to move into, hopefully before Easter. So we got to do some hustling on that to get that done. So that's kind of neat. It's exciting. Um, yeah. yeah. Praise God. Life is good. How about that Asbury revival, huh? How about that? That's and real until close by next to me. time. <laughs> <laughs>
That is close to you. That's right. Yeah, are you so, are you feeling any of the waves? It's only about an hour away. Everybody, I actually, know. go ahead. You've got you've got the Asbury revival waves coming from the south, and you've got the uh, East Palestine. Uh, contamination coming from the northeast to converge and you'll be a mutant charismatic (laughs) (laughs) that'll be something yeah yeah both those things are creating quite a bit of stir in our area um i imagine yeah i i personally know people who have driven to to asbury to kind of get a first-hand look at, at what's going on over there and a lot of interesting reports coming back so well, that's the one of the great things about being in Utah is we're really insulated out here. We've got mountains on the east and west. We're just a unique tribe. We have our own problems, but you, yeah, you're over there real connected. You got people all around you doing all kinds of crazy things. So yeah. Well, recently our governor asked Californians to stop moving here. <laughs> all right then. <laughs> Quit moving here as refugees is basically what he said. So. That's what we're up to. And you're just over there trying to stay alive. Yeah, trying not to die of chemical poisoning. Mm-hmm. Acid rain. Chocolate rain. Remember Chocolate that? rain. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Some stay dry and others feel the pain. Speaking of going off the rails, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> and until next time. New theology. 